Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Living Waters Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Eve O'Brien. As a nurse, doula, childbirth educator, and a mama myself, I've witnessed firsthand the transformative potential that lies within the sacred journey that's bringing life into the world. Together, we will explore personal stories, important birth-related topics, dispel myths, and challenge societal norms all through a lens of faith. Get ready to be inspired, educated, and empowered as we strive to reclaim God's design for childbirth. Welcome to the Living Waters Birth Podcast, my friends. I am so happy to have you here. Before we jump in, I just have to say that this podcast is not meant to be taken as medical advice of any kind and does not substitute care from your doctor or midwife. This podcast is for educational purposes only. so so excited to have the opportunity to talk with you today thank you for agreeing to come on yeah thanks for having me good morning good morning so we are going to talk today about birth emergencies and how they are handled in an out-of-hospital setting I think um, a lot of moms maybe have like the desire to give birth outside of a hospital but they don't know exactly what that would look like if something were to come up or you know many people write it off simply because they believe that if some emergency were to arise, then it wouldn't be able to be handled out of the hospital. So um, midwife Kyra is going to walk you guys through some of what those things look like in an out-of-hospital setting. But before we jump in, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your birth center, um, and like, why did you become a midwife? How long have you been a midwife? Yeah, so actually I'm coming up on my 10-year anniversary uh, next month, which I'm really excited about. Um, That seemed like a very far-fetched dream not that long ago, and now here I am 10 years in. It's really exciting. But um, my name's Midwife Kyra. I'm also known as the Cajun Stork. Uh, I own a Louisiana-licensed and recently nationally accredited birth center. We got it last week, actually. Um, Here in Louisiana, where if you're familiar with uh, America's statistics, America's already not doing all that great in birth, but Louisiana is one of the worst in this country. It's terrible. And so when I began midwifery, I was midwife number eight in the state. There's hardly any midwives to serve. And even still a decade later, there's just really not that many. Um, My birth center is one of five in the state. Uh, I'm the first um, midwife-owned birth center in the state, and then we've opened several more since then, but five in our entire state with awful statistics. So it's time Mm -hmm. for things to turn around here. Yeah, that's so crazy. And so we were briefly talking before hopping on here, and you just also let me know that they recently revoked y'all's like VBAC privileges and things like that too. So um, for women who like want to VBAC or you know, maybe they have a breech baby or twins, do they have to deliver in a hospital with an obstetrician or do they have, you know, is there even access to midwifery care in an in-hospital setting for most women in Louisiana? What does that look like? Um, So I live in Lafayette and they just opened an in-hospital, just going to say an in-hospital midwife uh, situation here in Lafayette. That's really not quite what they dreamed. I think they're still working on it. But if you travel across the bridge, it's called the Atchafalaya Bridge. I think it's the longest bridge in America. 
right across the bridge in Baton Rouge, they do have an in-hospital birth center um, that is staffed by midwives. It's not the freestanding model, but they do have water births and it really is a good experience. There's not a lot of options um, for that. However, we're really lucky here in Lafayette. Um, there's a physician here in town. His name's Dr. Damon Cudahy and people from all over the state drive to have their VBACs with him. Um, he's a phenomenal Christian-based provider here in town, and he happens to be our medical director, which is awesome. That's amazing. I think that that relationship is so important. I know that so many midwife run, especially, um, you know, birth centers run by licensed midwives, a lot of the time have a challenging time, like finding a provider to oversee and having that, like, um, you know, cohesive relationship with somebody who, when you do have a mom who, for whatever reason, needs a C-section, then you can work together um, and you provide the care until they become high risk. I think that's like so amazing to have that kind of a relationship. Yeah. And this is recent. I mean, Dr. Cudahy and I worked together in our uh, practice for a long time, but mostly just because we attract the same clientele. We're a Christian-based birth center who deals with a lot of married couples who want a better experience. Um, but now that he's a part of our practice, he literally, we, we all moved into a new birth, a new uh, facility in May. His mm -hmm. office is literally next door. We share a parking lot. So to have that access to him um, and his practice is just an incredible opportunity for my mamas at my birth yeah. center. What a godsend. That's amazing. And congratulations, mm -hmm. by the way, on being accredited. I know that that is such a process. We briefly talked about it. Um, and yeah, such such a huge accomplishment. So we all should be very proud of that. Thank um, you. Yeah. Okay. So first, I wanted to kind of go over like, what does a typical labor and delivery look like at your birth center versus in a hospital? Um, you know, I think many misconceptions are had about what out of hospital birth looks like. And obviously every delivery is different, but I would love for you to just like walk us through the basics of how that kind of looks different versus like a hospital delivery. Yeah. So, I mean, the very first thing you're going to notice in a birth center or a midwife style setting is that you're walking into an environment that you're familiar with, with people that you know. And I think you'll be surprised. Most mamas are surprised how the impact of strangers at your birth, just from the moment you walk in the door, starts a cascade of um, interventions even possibly. So in our birth center, the first things mamas do is walk into an environment that they're familiar with. They walk into a bedroom-like facility. Um, they're not immediately checked and evaluated in that sense. We can follow them around and listen to the baby's heart tones in whatever position they need. Because let's be honest, the car ride's tough. Mm -hmm. And so mamas don't want to crawl into the bed on their back. They want to walk around and kind of pace it off and we can listen to the baby wherever they're at. Um, mamas eat and drink in labor. There's no routine IVs, although we do have access to that, which you and I will probably get into shortly. Mm -hmm. um, our goal is for moms to have a normal physiological birth the way that God designed for us to birth our babies. Um, surrounded by love in a peaceful environment moving around, eating and drinking, and just kind of letting it be mother-led. So what happens, and I think the biggest difference and something that's so cool, is that when the baby's born in our environment, they're not these crying, screaming babies all the time. Most of the time, they're in their hormone, their oxytocin, their love hormone, right? Mm -hmm. And so instead of this adrenaline-filled belting out of their lungs, these babies come earthside and they tuck into mom's chest. And like the baby I delivered a few days ago, he went to sleep. Like he went back to sleep. 
But they just kind of look around and they blinky blinky looking at mom and they're just totally chill and in love. And it's just absolutely precious. Um, and part of what I teach my clients in my practice is that they need to expect that. What I didn't know is that because of media and because of expectations, um, dads were seeing our babies born into this peaceful environment, but were getting nervous that they weren't crying. Mm -hmm. That's normal. Babies don't have to belt it out. They can come into a peaceful environment and transition just by the sound of your voice and the touch of your skin. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's so true. I have seen so many mamas get nervous um, and dads as well when a baby's born and they're not immediately screaming, like, why is the baby crying? Why isn't the baby crying? Um, and I do think like, you know, mainstream birth culture makes it look like that is some kind of an emergency, but you know, there's a difference between a baby who is alert and peaceful and calm. And like you said, in their love hormones and bonding with their mama, like right after delivery versus a baby who um, is not alert. And that's the reason that they're crying, um, right. you know, a baby with a bad apgar who comes out floppy, bad tone or whatever. But I have also seen that assisting at a birth center that a lot of the times the babies just come out and they might let out like a little cry. Um, but for the most part, it's just, it's very peaceful, like completely different tone surrounding delivery. Um, so that is so beautiful. And I think it's beautiful too. What you often see in a birth center is that baby is not immediately ripped away from the mom to be taken to the warmer, to be assessed and weighed and whatever. They get that true uninterrupted skin to skin, that golden hour, which I know a lot of hospitals will say that they do a golden hour, but they do interrupt, um, most of the time and they clamp and cut the cord and um, is it similar in your birth setting? I'm uh, assuming that y'all just let the baby chill with the mom, right? Yeah. So in the hospital setting over here, they they do, and I have to say they've come a long way in the last decade of the, the idea, like you said, of the golden hour. But what happens is, is these babies are born and they're put directly on mom. There's no birth pause, right? There's no letting mom process. They grab the baby, they shove it on mom's chest. And the providers, normally the nurses, they aggressively dry these babies. I'm talking, there have been times that you want to just like pop their hand, like stop rubbing the baby. Mm -hmm. And so they're aggravating baby and overstimulating them. And there's a lot of chatter in the room about stuff that has nothing to do with this experience. So when a married couple is at the altar, we don't start having conversations with our neighbor out of respect we enjoy that moment with them. We're present. And birth etiquette is something that I'm super passionate about. I'd love to start educating more providers on birth etiquette. If you're just quiet at a birth, just silent, and you watch mom, dad, and baby connect, not only are we going to decrease the bleeding that mom's going to have because that placenta is going to come out smoother from that oxytocin, but if you've ever seen a dad get involved emotionally and connect with his mom and his baby the moment they're uh, the baby's born, there's just there's nothing like it, and it improves outcomes. So there's so many things that the hospital does different than what we do. But yes, to answer your question, we're very hands off. Um, we catch the baby in one towel, dry the baby quickly. We put on a different towel and we leave them alone and let them do their thing. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. 
that birth etiquette piece is so important and something that is so missing. Like when I have walked into, you know, either a home or a birth center environment when a mom is in labor, it feels like there is such a sacredness surrounding that space. Like when a mom is, you know, she's co-creating and co-laboring with God to bring new life into the world. And the veil is very thin in that moment between heaven and earth, right? Like it is such a beautiful and sacred event. And when it's not treated like an emergency and that space is really respected and people are tuning into mom's like birth energy, it just feels something completely different. It's like the most transformative, incredible thing to be a part of ever. Um, But you're right. It is so different. Oftentimes not really respected the same way in standard kind of medicalized birth culture. Um, So that's beautiful and so amazing. So I want to kind of talk about like some things that you see that might be variations of normal. Like one that I can think of off the top of my head is like, what if the cord is wrapped around the baby's neck? Yeah. So that's actually a common question I get in our consults. So the umbilical cord around the baby's neck is completely normal. It is a variation of normal. I think the study says statistics are maybe 30 to 33%. It's common. In fact, it's one of the most common things you'll see um, in a birth. And so the problem is, for whatever reason, um, culturally, it's become a fear factor. And maybe that comes from an old school idea that births used to be not attended by providers. Um, I can imagine that um, it's called a nuchal cord is another term for it, that a nuchal cord may be scary to someone who doesn't know how to handle it. And a lot of people aren't aware that when you grab the cord to pull it off the neck, you actually cause the cord to somewhat spasm and it shuts down the oxygen between the placenta and the baby a little bit more quickly than it would have happened. Mm-hmm. And so when people don't know how to deal with um, a nuchal cord, yeah, it can be a concern, I guess. But in our environment, it's a completely normal variation. We always prep our parents like, hey, when this happens, don't be alarmed. Don't be concerned. Like we know this is a possibility. It's nothing to be concerned about. And most of the time, I'm talking almost always, a cord wrapped around the neck once, twice, three times. It's very, very rarely a problem for healthy, low-risk women. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Especially if you're only having one baby. You have twins, we're having a different conversation. But one baby, yeah, you know. Right. That's so true. So what if it is tightly wound? Do you handle that any differently? Because, you know, with a loose... Um, nuchal cord, obviously you can just kind of reduce it. Like you were saying, you just kind of pull it over the baby's head. Now, what if it's tight? What do you, how do you guys tend to handle that? So actually I'm not suggesting that you reduce the cord and it's, it's your first instinct, right? Like release the baby, but really you don't want to touch the cord. So there's this really, really cool thing called a somersault maneuver. Have you ever heard of that? Mm -mm. So the somersault maneuver, and it looks wild when you see it, but it's really incredible and it doesn't require any um, traction on the cord. When the baby's being born, you simply press the baby's head into the mother's thigh and the rest of the baby will come tumbling out without any requiring of reducing the cord. The benefit of that, we all know about the benefits of delayed cord clamping, right? Better oxygenation to the baby, helps in the instance of a resuscitation, more blood to the baby. So most people aren't aware that when we touch the cord to reduce it, we're initiating the process of ending that transfer of oxygen. So the best thing we can do is be hands off. And it's a super cool maneuver. Um, The midwife I just hired last year, 
She's so incredible at it that I've had opportunities to snap pictures of it one by one to show it. She's, um, she's allowed me, uh, the moms have allowed me to have those pictures to be able to show in the future. And I'd love one day to make a post. It's an incredible maneuver and it, it is safe. Mm, that is so, so cool. And you know, um, I don't think that I actually was aware of the fact that it caused the cord to like vasospasm and cut off oxygen between mom and baby. That's just how I, I had normally seen, you know, um, you reduce the cord. That's just like what you do in a nuchal cord. So I didn't even know that that was a thing. I think I had briefly heard from a midwife that I've assisted a couple of times, like flexing the baby's head towards the mom's thigh, but I had never called it her the somersault maneuver. And I didn't know that you would do it um, with any kind of nuchal cord. So that's amazing. What other kinds of like variations of normal do you see that people often think like is an emergency? Um, I mean, I wouldn't use the word emergency, but like, for example, sunny side up presentations, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a lot of that conversation has started online about preventing OP or also known as sunny side up. Yeah. Right. Um, I wouldn't say it's an emergency, but it definitely ba- makes birth more challenging and maternal exhaustion can become an emergency. Um, but really, you know, what we're going to talk about today about actual birth emergencies, some of those are decently common, like postpartum hemorrhage or a neonatal resuscitation. Um, but they're not emergencies when you have a trained healthcare provider who knows how to manage it appropriately. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, for those listening who might not know what sunny side up means or like what posterior presentation is, could you just describe what that is really quick? Sure. So when a baby is born, baby's face faces your hiney, right? And so sunny side up means that the baby is turned around. So when the baby is coming out, the baby is facing the same way you're facing or sunny side up. You know, the baby's face comes out facing the mother's pubic bone. The thing about sunny side up or OP is the other name for it. The reason why it's more complicating in a birth setting is because it actually increases the circumference of the head coming through the pelvis um, just because of the way that, you know, the baby's head fits in that, um, in the pelvis. And it, it makes birth usually longer. The contractions aren't as consistent all the time. And usually the pushing phase is extended tremendously. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean they won't fit, but it definitely makes things a little bit more complicated. Sure. Totally. Um, Okay. So I would love to know what you as a midwife have at your birth center in case of emergencies, or do you do home births ever? Do you attend them or just at the center? I do Mm -hmm. friends, family, repeat clients at home. Okay, sure. Okay. So um, for home births too, like what do you bring? Because I think a lot of people have this misconception that midwives just like show up and they're like, well, if something happens, what do we do? But that's not the case at all, right? Y'all come prepared with so many supplies to help you in case of some kind of medical emergency. So what, what do you have? Yeah. So first of all, let me start off by saying that not every midwife is going to practice the same. There's laws and state requirements that prevent or allow certain medications. There's also personal beliefs. I know midwives who don't bring, you know, bleeding medications to a birth. I don't support that. I don't think it's safe. It's what's safest for the moms, but that is how they practice. So the first thing your your uh, audience should know is don't just assume because what I'm telling you that my birth center here in Louisiana is prepared means that your midwife is prepared. You need to ask a lot of questions. Mm, that's a um, great point. 
you need to look at your state standards too. For example, I have a really good midwife friend in Arkansas. She's a phenomenal midwife. They're not allowed to carry Pitocin. Now, mm -hmm. I'm not going to say whether or not they do carry Pitocin because midwives <laughs> know how to practice safely, right? Mm -hmm. But they're not legally allowed to do it. That's absurd. They're yeah. state preventing midwives from practicing safely, but they're allowing them to be licensed. Yeah. Yeah. So with that said, it's really, really important that your audience knows just because you know, CABC birth centers are prepared or just because a midwife that you know is prepared, your midwife, you need to ask. And it's unfortunate, but that's just the way that it is. So with that said, our birth center, let's go back to that. Um, and this is all CABC birth centers that I'm aware of, by the way. Uh, they do have strict requirements on, you know, we have to meet standards to keep moms and babies safe. So most birth centers are going to have at least one, if not multiple bleeding medications, Pitocin, Methogen, sometimes Cytotec. Um, they're going to have oxygen and resuscitation equipment for both mom and baby. In addition to that, um, they have to have access to IV fluids and access to the entire neonatal resuscitation protocol algorithm, which means although most babies only require rescue breaths, it is important that your midwife has access to go beyond that with CPR um, and access uh, with medications or at least a quick transfer in the instance that medications aren't available for her, such as epinephrine for the baby. Very, very rare, but also very, very important to have. Um, again, IV fluids, oxygen, resuscitation equipment, bleeding medications, and, and adequate staffing. So I was one time asked, what do you think about being the only person at my birth? And the answer to that is no, for a hundred reasons. But the main two, number one, you come in as one mama, but you're leaving as two patients, mm -hmm. right? I need and you deserve to have a person dedicated to each of you, which brings me to number two, neonatal resuscitation protocol called NRP. They recommend that at each birth, there is a minimum of two providers and one strictly dedicated to the baby. Because some of the birth emergencies we're going to talk about actually it's not uncommon that both mom and baby would go down at the same time after that emergency unfolds. So it's important that you have not only equipment, but staff. I think the most common misconception about choosing a midwife is that you have to have a completely complication-free birth or you go into the hospital. And that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, in our state, in my birth center, we are more than prepared to handle emergencies and complications that are a normal variation in birth. For example, postpartum hemorrhage where mom bleeds heavily after the delivery, um, neonatal resuscitation where baby needs some rescue breaths. Those are decently common birth emergencies that are very well handled by a skilled provider that do not require a transfer to the hospital in most circumstances. In fact, I personally, so uh, unfortunately, I'm no longer a candidate for midwifery care. I have epically severe postpartum hemorrhages um, where I'm not a candidate. But with that said, I was my midwife's worst hemorrhage. Very, very well managed with, by her at home. I was able to stay home for the full six hours before we decided to keep me overnight for observation at the hospital. Um, and I was in great hands with appropriate medication and IV fluids and all the things to keep me safe. And that's where um, birth emergencies and midwives are so important. Um, we can handle emergencies. Yeah. I just want to interject super quickly and yeah. add, um, I was also a postpartum hemorrhage with my daughter, Avila, like not super, super severe, but 
relatively bad. I think I lost like 1300 or something like that from a ruptured hematoma. But a lot of times when I tell people that, and I was, I was transferred emergently. Um, but they're like, oh my gosh, that was, that must've been so scary. Like how did, but my midwives handled it. They did right. all the things there. And then I was transferred. It wasn't like I was transferred to the hospital actively bleeding. Um, I was only transferred because they wanted to have a look at my tear and see if it needed further repair in the OR. But my midwife was incredibly skilled in the way that she did everything she needed to do. And she completely stopped it. She handled it there. So right. Yeah. Right. Midwives have skilled hands. Mm-hmm. Or as one of the posts I've seen before in the past said, we just know how to sit on them. When things are normal, leave it alone. When things are not normal, we're there. We're prepared with all of our equipment. We have the knowledge and the skill and the practice beneath us to handle it and move on. Yes, ma'am. That is awesome. Um, that's such a good phrase. Okay. So what are some of the most common birth emergencies that you see And let's kind of walk through how you handle those. Yeah. Oh, man, I wish I had my pelvis and my placenta to give you a visual. This is going to be hard without a visual. Um, So a lot of times when I'm doing a consult, the first question I get asked is, what's the most common emergency that you're going to see? And there's two, actually. There's one for mom and one for baby. Let's talk about the one for mom first, because that's the one that dads really want to know about. Like moms often think about their baby but dads are thinking about their lady, right? And Mm -hmm. so the first and the most common birth emergency that you're gonna see is postpartum hemorrhage. So this is where the baby is born, the placenta is born, and there's something called uterine apnea, where it just basically means the uterus is really, really lazy and it doesn't wanna clamp down and stop the bleeding. Now, why does this happen? The placenta is like the size of the palm of your hand, right? Mm-hmm. So you picture an open wound the size of your entire hand. If there was an open wound on my leg from a car accident, how would we stop the bleeding? We would apply pressure. Mm-hmm. Well, fortunately for us, our uterus is perfectly designed where the other side of the uterus applies the pressure through contractions. So yes, you will continue to have contractions after you give birth. If the uterus is lazy, it just kind of relaxes. And so there's nothing applying pressure to that bleeding wound. And now we're having excessive bleeding. So most common birth emergency, maternal hemorrhage. How do you stop it? Well, there's a lot of things we can do before we need to jump into medications. We can calm ourselves and go back to birth etiquette like we discussed earlier. Dad being emotionally present and shouting for joy or connecting and kissing on his lady can make such a huge difference on um, her oxytocin levels, but more importantly, what about putting the baby on the mom, even if there is an emergency, right? Babies pawing at the breast or being near even the nipple, completely exposed. I'm not talking baby to nursing bra, I'm talking baby skin to skin, Um, can greatly increase oxytocin, which is a natural form of the drug pitocin, which I would give you in the instance that I couldn't get your bleeding under control with oxytocin. Um, nursing the baby is also something you can do, although not all babies are quite ready to nurse in those first three to five minutes. Um, so that's kind of how we handle that. Now, let's say Pitocin's not enough. I give you Pit. It's not quite strong enough to do what it needs to do. Most midwives carry other medications with them. Um, the most common one and uh, is called Methogen, but there's also another one called Cytotec, which you're probably familiar with with um, 
induction, but actually Cytosec can be used after the delivery to stop bleeding as well. And in addition to all of this, there's IV fluids, there's oxygen, there's all kinds of other things like getting mom up and getting her to bear down and all kinds of other things that we can do to stop bleeding for the mom. Um, that doesn't require her to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. That's so good. So, so important. Um, okay. Thank you. So we can move back to postpartum hemorrhage then. Um, are there any things that you have seen that put moms at a higher risk for postpartum hemorrhage where you kind of, you know, they're getting near delivery and you're kind of suspecting this might be a thing? Yeah. So part of our practice uh, routinely is at term 37 weeks. So we do something called a postpartum hemorrhage risk assessment. And so that is low, moderate, and high. Now, keeping in mind that there are standards for this, but those standards are made for hospital settings where a high-risk woman would be someone where they would have like a blood bank on standby, right? But in a birth center setting, high-risk means I am on high alert. I might do something called active management of the third stage in preparation. I might give you a prophylactic HEPLOC so that I can have quick IV access because you are at a higher risk for a healthy mom of a hemorrhage, right? So some of those things, anemia at term. One of the coolest things I think midwives do is we do a CBC or an iron check at 37 weeks so that when we go into birth, we know whether or not moms are anemic and we can do what we can do to try and boost their iron levels before the birth. Um, most physician practices don't do that. They do it when you arrive in labor, right? Mm -hmm. um, second, having more than I think four vaginal deliveries increases your risk of hemorrhage slightly. Having a prior postpartum hemorrhage, believe it or not, the risk is only like 18% of having a recurring hemorrhage. But I have to tell you, I mark it as a risk factor because I want to know. In general, you know, remembering that high risk for a midwifery practice is not high risk mm -hmm. when it comes to postpartum hemorrhage risk assessing. Sure. That totally makes sense. What about like a long labor? Do you feel like that increases a mom's risk for uterine apnea specifically? Absolutely. Long labors in first stage and long pushing phases, either or or both, definitely would be something that has me on high alert that we might be at risk of a hemorrhage. Something that I also just want to kind of like quickly insert here too, which is not applicable to an out-of-hospital practice, but a lot of moms don't realize that um, inductions and use of Pitocin in labor is also a risk factor, especially if you've been on Pitocin for over 12 hours, which most moms being induced are because usually induction is a long process, especially if it's first baby, that does put you at higher risk as well. Um, so yeah, it's great that we can kind of anticipate and know some of these things ahead of time so that we can be on higher alert, right? Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, that's so good. So you can be prepared. So you walked us through how to handle hemorrhage. What about shoulder dystocia? Yeah, so shoulder dystocia is one of those things that is um, a medical emergency. It does require a trained healthcare provider or some kind of movement um, of the mother of the baby to relieve the baby. So shoulder dystocia, for those who may not know, is when the baby's head is delivered, but the shoulder that is facing the pubic bone gets stuck on the pubic bone. And the only way for the baby to be born from that point forward is to remove that shoulder from the pubic bone. It's not a very common emergency and it's not something that happens just because the baby came out, you know, vaginally. This is something that is, you know, pretty rare, but when it does happen, you definitely need to act quickly. Um, now, 
hospitals and midwives are going to handle this very different, right? The majority of women in a hospital have an epidural, so we can't move the mother. We move the baby. But as a midwife, I know that we can move the mother, and it doesn't necessarily require me to stick my hands up in there and start navigating the baby. And so the first thing we can do with a mom with a shoulder dystocia is to open their pelvis. How do we do that? Hands and knees position, or it's also called Gaskin maneuver. So most people don't know that when you birth on your back, you're closing your pelvis by 30%. So you got a baby who's stuck. Instead of trying to unstick the baby with your hands, just open the pelvis. Make the, make the opening wider. Move the mom. And sometimes just the simple act of switching positions, if mom didn't deliver in a hands and knees, let's say she was delivering standing up, right? By putting her on those hands and knees, just sometimes the movement alone will get the baby out. Um, if that doesn't work, we move the mom in multiple positions first. And if that doesn't work, then we navigate the baby. So this is where we physically insert our hands into the vagina and rotate the baby off of the pubic bone. Kind of picture like a corkscrew, you know, um, going in and out, right? Most of the time, that's a pretty easy maneuver when moms are unmedicated because they can move around. That pelvis is open in the hands and knees position. Um, but there is one final maneuver that can be done for a baby who's just stuck, stuck, um, is called breaking the clavicle. So this is where a provider would reach in and break the collarbone of the baby. And I know what you're probably thinking, right? Like, you're going to break my baby? But from mom to mom here... If it's going to save my baby's life, midwife, please, please break my baby's collarbone. Right. Babies totally. recover really well, right? Unfortunately, in my experience in the hospital setting, I've seen that as a first line maneuver. Like, oh, shoulder dystocia, break. And that's unfortunate. Um, I have had a handful of shoulder dystocias, a lot. I wish I hadn't, but I had. And to this day, it's not a maneuver I've had to use. Um, and yet in the hospital setting, I've also seen a handful of them and all but maybe two of them had their clavicles broken. So it is a useful tool. It saves lives, but it should be your last resort. And again, just another reason why you need a skilled provider at your birth. We shouldn't be practicing birth emergencies out of fear. We should be practicing them with knowledge and skill. Yes, absolutely. That is so good. Um, what happens if a mom wants to birth in water and you notice, uh, you know, baby's head is born, a, a little while has passed, the rest of the baby still hasn't come. So what do you, how do you handle a shoulder dystocia in water? So it, I think this is going to depend on the provider setting. How big is the tub, right? In my environment, get out of the tub. Mm -hmm. So even though there's a head poking out of the vagina, we assist the mother and guard the baby's head and get her out of the tub and do what we need to do on the outside. Okay. And that's a, that's a topic, a conversation that we have with them before the delivery. We actually teach a birth emergencies class around 35, 36 weeks to all of our families. And that's one of the things we say is, believe it or not, as chatty as I am, right? I am actually really calm and quiet at a birth. I use a very sweet voice. I talk very little. I tell them, when you hear my midwife voice and I say, it's time to get out of the tub, start moving. That means something's not right. And we'll, we'll talk about it later. And uh, they do. They're very receptive to the shift in the tone. Uh, we go from being soft and sweet to firm. It's time to make a move. 
Something that I love that you touched on in your birth emergencies video on YouTube is that, you know, they, because midwifery care is so personal, oftentimes they have already built a trusting relationship with you through their prenatals and, you know, asked you many questions and whatnot. And it's also amazing that you educate them on the possibility of these emergencies ahead of time. But you say in that video, which I love is, you know, if you notice my tone change, you have already built a trusting relationship with me. So you know that, um, you know, hopefully you trust me to handle that and deal with things as they arise. And then we can ask questions and debrief later rather than it turning into this super traumatic event because all of a sudden things are being done to the mom. Nothing's being explained. She doesn't know what's going on and things like that because that foundational trust is already there. So yeah, I love that. That kind of care that midwives provide. I mean, it's like 12 to 16 hours of care while they're pregnant. So you spend 12 to 16 hours with your bestie and then you go and you give birth with your bestie and you're going to be able to tell the difference between when everything's going smooth and when she has some concerns just by the tone of her voice. And that's such a value that midwives bring to the birth setting is the relationship. It's so, so important to have a relationship with your mamas. And it's so important just for the physiology of birth in general, too. Like you were kind of talking about before, the way that God designed us to give birth, there's this whole cascade of hormones that happens. And having people that you trust in that setting and are familiar with makes such a huge difference. Um, Okay, so what about when your babies come out and they are not perky and pink and alert like you would like to see? Can we talk some about like newborn resuscitation and what that looks like at a birth center? Yeah, so... Newborn resuscitation is the second most common birth emergency that we'll see. And one thing I like to tell my parents is when you see the blue bag come out and we're starting to give your baby rescue breaths, your baby is alive. The baby is connected to the umbilical cord. Your baby has a heartbeat. Your baby just needs rescue breaths. It's equivalent to kind of like passing out, right? And unfortunately, the baby's passing out but hasn't ever inhaled yet and needs that little extra umph to get it. And that's where midwives come in. What's funny is NRP teaches us that we have to do like a full 60 seconds of resuscitation before we evaluate um, the baby, reevaluate. But in my experience for healthy low-risk moms birthing in an out-of-hospital setting, Two or three puffs on that baby, and they will fight you off of them. Babies do not like you breathing for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that just goes to show also the value of being connected to the umbilical cord. So if you don't mind me talking about the difference between resuscitation in a hospital versus, uh, let's say, a birth center, right? Please do. Yeah. In the hospital, the OB delivers the baby. And makes his own assessment of some kind, usually about 30 seconds. And at that point, he realizes the baby needs to be resuscitated. He clamps and cuts the cord, hands the baby over to NICU or the nurse, passes it to that person. That person takes the baby across the room, at least in our state, and they have to do their own 30-second eval, rubbing and stimulating and all these things on the baby. The baby during this time is cut off of oxygen. Um, and waiting to be resuscitated. Then they start the resuscitation. When the baby does come around, a lot of times they're frightened. Can you imagine? You pass out, you wake up, there's a lot of bright lights, you're naked, you're cold, people are breathing for you, they're touching you. Like that's, 
That's really scary. Mm -hmm. And what I love about midwifery resuscitation is the baby isn't this like byproduct. The baby is your baby, uh, you know, called by name, so deeply desired that we resuscitate in a quiet environment, preferably on mom's skin. I encourage my families to call their baby by name when I'm resuscitating them, you know, um, so that as we are bringing the baby around, they're hearing the comfort of their mother and father's voice who they know so well. In addition to that, though, when we resuscitate, you're going to hear me confirm for the parents because they don't know what they're seeing. They see the blue bag. They know that we're resuscitating. They don't know how scary or how long. So you'll hear me, you know, confirm for them and encourage them with what I see. You know, oh, look, baby's pinking up. Look at those pink lips. Oh, she's coming around. She's almost there. And you'll see those babies just come to life. Uh, resuscitations in a birth center setting are usually so calm. And the baby has been oxygenated this entire time. Like it couldn't go better. Um, so they're handled very well by midwives, for sure. So good. And I love that it can be peaceful. I don't think that's something that a lot of people realize. Like many moms have a misconception that newborn resuscitation automatically means your baby gets taken away from you. Right. But in a midwifery setting, it doesn't always mean that. It doesn't always mean scary and chaotic. As frightening as I'm sure it can be, it can stay peaceful. And I also love that you just touch on like, the personhood of the baby, like being called by name and being so deeply desired and, you know, um, just being treated as such, like as a person. And that's a huge difference that I see too, is like the baby is not just the baby. The baby is also like to be cared for as a whole person and to kind of right. look at things from their perspective. And even though, you know, their brain is immature, their nervous system is immature um, and they don't have the same kind of perception that we do as adults, what they're seeing and feeling still matters. And I think mm -hmm. that's so often just completely discounted as like, they won't remember it. It really doesn't matter, but that's not true at all. They're still human persons. Right. Um, okay. So what about um, like a cord prolapse? I know that that's one that really, if people know what that is, it scares them. Um, and, you know, I would love to just kind of hear how that would be handled. Have you ever had one, first of all? They're very rare. Praise God, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so how would that be handled in an out-of-hospital setting? So first of all, let's explain what a cord prolapse is, just in case your audience may not know or mine either. Um, so a cord prolapse is when the water breaks and the umbilical cord of the baby comes ahead of the baby. And that head of the baby presses the umbilical cord, whether in the vagina or against the cervix and can cut off oxygen. It's like a kink in a water hose. But unfortunately that water hose is holding your baby's oxygen and it's the lifeline. Um, this is a true obstetrical emergency. However, I was doing some research in the last couple of days about cord prolapse. And apparently when I was trained 10 years ago um, on the risk of cord prolapse and the likelihood of baby surviving and the newest studies, night and day difference. For example, um, we all know as healthcare providers, over 50% of cord prolapses are caused by your provider. Mm -hmm. This is so true. This is, um, and just to kind of, 
you know, clarify that for the audience. If a baby, well, I, you can get into it actually, if you want to. Um, but by AROM, I'm assuming is what you're going to go into. Yes. Most of the time. So here's what happens. Um, when the baby is, when the baby's head is not deeply engaged in the pelvis and engaged, meaning the term zero station and your water bag is broken by your provider before that baby is deeply engaged, especially if you're dilated, the studies say five centimeters or more is usually when you'll see that as well. The risk is that when that gush of fluid comes out, it brings the cord with it and smashes the cord between your baby's head. Very, very scary. They will flip you to a knee chest position and bring you straight back to the OR most of the time. Um, so what do midwives do? Uh, most, it's not that midwives don't rupture membranes. We can, but also I believe that birth is safer the more you leave it alone. So unless I need to, I try not to, but when we do one of the requirements, this is non-negotiable is that that head is deeply, deeply engaged in that pelvis. It's not worth the risk otherwise. Mm -hmm. Um, so with that said, 50% of those cord prolapses are provider caused. Well, you're already here. You're already being induced. Let's break your water. The question you need to ask is, what station is my baby at? If the answer is not zero, I would encourage you to refuse that. The risk is too high. Mm -hmm. um, with that said, the risk of cord prolapse is less than 1%. I think it's like 0.4 to 0.8. Just like to, you know, I, I think it's so good to shed light on the fact that these things can happen. I never want to make anybody feel afraid and I think it's so good to like instill in people, even though this is an emergency and, you know, it can be very dangerous, the chances of your baby actually not making it are not very much. You know, the absolute risk is very low and the chance of it happening like in general is very, very low. Like in my entire labor and delivery career, which I guess is not very long compared to some people, but um, I worked at a very high risk women's hospital for a while and I only saw this happen twice um, as a NICU nurse. Um, and, you know, we get called to those high risk deliveries and both of them are extremely premature, which puts you at greater risk of this happening. So it's not like, um, you know, you will be in a normal delivery most of the time and things will be going fine and you're low risk and you'll have a cord prolapse. That is very, very rare. Okay. So here's another fact that I researched about cord prolapse. The general risk of cord prolapse is 0.8%. But 50% of the time, it's iatrogenic, meaning it's caused by medical interventions. Therefore, the risk of prolapse in a normal, uncomplicated term birth is 0.4%. I mean, that's almost none. You know, it's very, yeah. very little. Um, which and it's is crazy like, that that intervention doubles the risk, practically. Right. But nobody talks about that. Nobody talks about the choices that we make or even offer us enough informed consent to say, mm, Although the risk of cord prolapse is 0.8% if you break my water, I'm going to wait until the baby's head's engaged. Mm -hmm. That's I don't, even, I don't even think people know that they're allowed to decline a lot of the time because it's approached as a, I am going to break your water now as they're doing a cervical exam, which for many women is, you know, very challenging to even get through. And so they're just like, do what you need to do not really even being aware that they have the option to decline and that there are risks. There are risks anytime that we interfere. And sometimes that interference can be the thing that saves you or your baby. Um, right. Like we're talking about, right? In true obstetric emergencies, we need a trained healthcare provider to be able to intervene and do the things that they need to do to save mom or baby. But 
um, there are risks anytime that we intervene when things are normal. So, um, yeah, that's crazy. Awesome. Are there any other like birth emergencies that you see often that you want to touch on? Um, accidental unassisted birth. Yeah. Let's talk about that one. Okay. So, uh, accidental car birth, accidental unassisted birth. Here's what you need to know when your term and you're having a healthy low risk pregnancy and your baby comes so fast that you didn't even have time to process it. It comes in the car. It comes at home on the toilet. It comes in the parking lot at the birth center, whatever the case is, you need to have confidence in knowing that most of the time when babies come that fast, everything's just fine. In fact, I would go on to say everything's literally perfect. The head is tucked. The baby's in the right position. The uterus is doing its job. Mom's in the right frame of mind and the baby comes. It's, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. What happens is we, as a culture, seem to believe that we must have someone at our birth for it to be safe. Um, and although I recommend it, when babies come that fast, everything's usually fine. One of the benefits of midwifery care is that you get your midwife cell phone number on day one. So if you're having a baby in the car on the way to the birth center, you're going to call me or put me on FaceTime And it's your decision. You want to pull over or you want to do what I trained you to do in the birth emergencies class and just get your baby out and I'll meet you wherever you're at. So babies come out and the biggest mistake that women make in an unplanned, unassisted birth is they're so shocked. They like hold their babies out and just stare at them. And I tell my mama, it's like your baby needs to be dried and warmed. So if you're in the front seat of the car, dad can take off his shirt, dry the baby, and tuck the baby up underneath your shirt, skin to skin. That's where your baby belongs. Mm -hmm. Don't just hold them out and stare at them. They're probably shocked too. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Um, Okay, so that's essentially what you would recommend, right? Like just catch and put them skin to skin, dry them off, and then wait, right? Or go to your birth location. Yeah, don't mess with the cord. Don't start trying to cut stuff. Leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Everything, when birth happens that fast for term babies, everything's usually just fine. Okay, awesome. That's so good. Um, Okay, any other like misconceptions about midwifery care that you feel like you could touch on um, that you like see common that you want to like dispel any myths that you see or misconceptions people have? Um... So, like I said earlier, the most common thing is that people tend to believe that to deliver with a midwife, you have to have a completely normal, uncomplicated birth and that our clients are lucky. But what most people don't realize is in that 12 to 16 hours of time we spend in their pregnancy together, we're building a foundation of health. So we're focusing on nutrition, supplementing, emotional health, stress relief, Family dynamics, there's so many things that go into the birth that people don't even realize. For example, I read a study that said when a first-time mom's vitamin D is low, she's greatly increased to have a chance of a C-section. So why are we not routinely checking all vitamin D levels? Not to mention the impacts of vitamin D in preventing or you know improving the outcomes of COVID and, and things like that. Fatigue, bacterial vaginosis, and the list goes on and on. But more importantly... Why are we not checking these things? So midwives, my my clients aren't lucky. They work hard throughout their pregnancy, hydrating and nourishing their bodies and sleeping and sharing their heart with us so that when we get into the birth, we know 
exactly where you're at emotionally with your spouse, um, with your job, with the desire for this baby. We know your nutritional status. And even if you have a complication, we can handle it and you can still go home six hours later and do your postpartum care at home. You don't have to go to the hospital just because you have a problem. Um, so that's probably the most common thing I see is people just assume our clients are lucky they don't have problems. That's not true. Again, midwife has skilled hands, but we know how to sit on them. We do our work best when, when we have to. When we have to do what we have to do, we're very good at it. But thankfully, we don't have to use those skills very often. That's so good. Well, thank you so much, Kyra. I think that this is going to be a really, really enlightening discussion for a lot of women. Um, you know, and like I kind of touched on earlier, I don't, I think it's good to be informed about the things that are a true emergency and how they're handled in the case that they do arise, then some of that fear can be taken out. And, you know, like this information isn't to scare any moms into thinking like, oh my gosh, birth is so scary. This is going to happen to me. It's more so to say like, you could still be a perfectly good candidate for out-of-hospital midwifery care, and these things even could unfold in your birth, but if you have a skilled midwife there, they are more than capable, usually, of handling them with so much grace, and these things don't have to be scary. Some, like We can demystify some things that happen surrounding birth that can be more emergent but can be handled really well. So I'm so grateful for you taking the time to kind of educate my um, ladies on these things and for you know, talking to me today. I'm super, super grateful. And I'm so excited for you that y'all were recently accredited. That's such an amazing accomplishment. So thank you so much, Kyra. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys for tuning into this week's episode of the Living Waters Birth Podcast. And I will see you guys next time. Hey mama, if you're listening to this right now, that means that you can grab your free guide to rocking your unmedicated birth with holy confidence. All you have to do is just click the link for my website in the description of this podcast and input your email in the little box that will pop up on my homepage. That way, as soon as I release the free guide, you'll be the first to know. So I haven't officially released it yet, but I'm going to in the very near future. And I would love to see how you're able to utilize this tool for preparing for your labor and birth. Thank you again so much for tuning in this week, and I will talk to you soon.